0: Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast for episode number 152. With a special episode with expert in psychology and cognitive neuroscience, Dr. Howard Rankin, who will interview me for a change of pace. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona. And like many of our listeners have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high performance strategies in our schools, sports and the workplace with ideas that we can all use, understand and implement immediately for improved results. This week, with the 2021 Olympics in full swing, some of the headlines have caught my attention, specifically the story of gymnast Simone Biles, since both of my girls are in competitive gymnastics with a rigorous training schedule. Assistant Superintendent Greg Wolcott from Chicago, who's appeared on our podcast twice so far with episode number seven on building relationships in today's classrooms, and again for episode 64 on making connections with neuroscience and social-emotional learning, pointed out that Biles use self-awareness, self-management, and responsible decision-making to look after her personal well-being, Proving that these skills are not just important, but crucial to develop in our children for future success. As I was preparing to release my interview with Dr. Rankin, I thought it would be important to review these three social and emotional learning competencies and reflect on them to see where we are with them in our own personal and professional lives. These competencies are the backbone to what we cover on this podcast, with our goal to connect these competencies to the most current neuroscience research, hence the name of our podcast, Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning. So to review these three important SEL competencies, if we think about how these competencies played out for Simone Biles, I'm sure we could all agree that we all use these competencies on a day-to-day basis. It's not just our students who must think about making responsible decisions, it's all of us every day as we juggle life's many obstacles like our work, family, and all the changes that come our way in our personal and professional lives. For today's episode, we'll look at the three competencies that Greg Wolcott pointed out that she used and see if we can think about them in our own daily life. Are you self-aware? How about your self-management? Are you in control of your emotions and behaviors? Do you make responsible decisions? Self-awareness. We released this episode number two in July of 2019, and this episode gained immediate interest since to know thyself is the most substantial achievement we can have in our lifetime. The major value in life is not what you get, it's what you become. Jim Rohn said that, American author, speaker, and entrepreneur. So let's take a deeper look. What is self-awareness? Why do we need it? And how do we get more of it? Self-awareness is the ability to see ourselves clearly, understand who we are, how others see us, and how we fit into the world. When we have self-awareness, we have a power within ourselves because there's a comfort in knowing who exactly we are and where we fit into the larger world around us. Research shows that people who are more self-aware have stronger relationships, are more creative, competent, and better communicators and perform better at work. Do you know yourself? What drives you? Or even what gets under your skin? Go back and listen to this episode for a full list of strategies and suggestions to dive deeper into yourself. But as I'm learning, it's a lifetime project. Keep learning, growing, and moving towards your goals with each new idea and suggestion. And please do keep sending me messages through social media. It really does help to hear how you're using these ideas. The next competency, self-regulation or self-management. We covered this competency on episode 14 and in many other episodes as it clearly became a topic of interest, but one of my favorite episodes was episode 53 from April of 2020 on self-regulation in your brain based on the work of Dr. Bruce Perry from the Neurosequential Network, who will be appearing on the podcast in October of this year with his new book with Oprah Winfrey, What Happened to You? So what is self-regulation and why is it so important? Self-regulation is the ability to manage your emotions and behavior in accordance with the demands of the situation. It includes being able to resist highly emotional reactions to upsetting stimuli, to calm yourself down when you get upset, adjust to a change in expectations, and the ability to handle frustration. In other words, it's the ability to bounce back after a setback or disappointment and the ability to stay in congruence with your inner value system. The ability to control one's behavior, emotions, and thoughts is an integral skill to be taught to young children as well so that they can form and maintain healthy relationships and connections later in life. As an adult, self-regulation is important in day-to-day life as we must learn how to handle and bounce back from life's challenges and disappointments in our personal and professional lives. This skill is crucial to develop as we all know that life is full of ups and downs and we must be able to navigate through challenging situations before we can reach any level of achievement and success. We all know people who seem to bounce back after adversity. It's not by luck or chance, it's because they've learned how to self-regulate and intentionally get themselves back on course. This is a learned skill and one that we must teach and model to our students and children for them to be able to master it as adults. I'm still working on this one myself. The third competency is responsible decision-making. We released this episode 12 on August 9th of 2019. Understanding the neuroscience behind decision making can be an important tool when looking for new results and making improvements with this competency. To make sound decisions, we must have a healthy and sound brain. We discussed the importance of brain development and results and the fact that your brain is not fully developed until the age of 25 for females and 28 for males on past episodes, so it's critical that we take care of our brain to ensure that we're able to make sound decisions later in life. An understanding of our brain's functions and form are crucial to our future success since our brain is involved in literally everything that we do. Changing our thinking is the first steps toward changing our results, and no one can do this for you. The next step is taking action on the decisions. Most people get stuck here and end up blaming others for their results when they look around and don't like what they see. They blame the job market for the fact they don't have the job they'd like to do or what's going wrong in the world or whatever they've created. Responsible people never blame others for the results, but take 100% responsibility and ownership. This is an important skill to learn in the classroom as well as the workplace. Do you make responsible decisions? Now that we've reviewed some of the important SEL competencies that we cover on this podcast, I hope it's given you a chance to review them and think about new ways of thinking that can help to make improvements in your life. Let's now go straight to my interview with expert in psychology and cognitive neuroscience, Dr. Rankin, who will ask me some questions for a change and see what else we'll uncover.
1: Hi, and welcome to the How Not to Think podcast, Uh, the podcast that gets you thinking about your thinking and challenging things such as binary thinking, stereotypes, myths, etc, etc. I'm Dr. Howard Rankin, and I am delighted to have on the show today, Andrea Samadhi, um, who I already owe a debt of gratitude because she has a great podcast called Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning. I was on the show uh, a few days ago, and she did a phenomenal job in editing the YouTube version. Uh, Really great. We'll get into that as the show progresses. But Andrea comes to us from Arizona. And enough about uh, enough from me. Let's introduce her. Thank you so much, Andrea, for being on the show. It's great to have you.
0: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation last week, and I'm still thinking about it.
1: Well, yeah, it was a good, 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 good conversation. It was great, and I'm looking forward to to resuming a conversation. Except this time, I'll shut up and let you talk. Okay, so give our uh, listeners some background into how you get to be where you are today.
0: Sure. Well, it's a, I'll combine 20 years into like a couple of minutes here, but it started in the late '90s when I was a classroom teacher. You know, out of Um, Toronto's Faculty of Ed Teachers College went straight into teaching. Um, My sisters were both in education, my dad and my mom went into finance but really she was a teacher at heart so we're kind of a, a family of educators and here I was at my first teaching job and my students were behavioral students. And uh, I was actually hired by my middle school history teacher in Toronto. So got my first job. I thought he was going to give me a great position, but he gave me a classroom of 30 behavioral kids. And I wasn't trained in teacher's college to deal with behavior, uh, let alone try and teach the content. So I think I burned out quickly. I was counting down the days till it was over and What happened was I had a neighbor who worked in the motivational speaking industry for a well-known speaker. And one day he gave me a book that really opened my eyes to the fact that uh, we have a lot of potential inside ourselves. And I didn't think I was using my potential, so I quit teaching and went to work for this speaker. Um, It was actually at the time a big pay cut. I went from a teaching salary in Toronto, which is much higher than what we'd get here in Arizona. But um, anyway, it was the security of the benefits. My dad said, you're gonna regret this day. It wasn't a a pleasant meeting at our household when I said I was gonna go work um, for $10 an hour for this speaker. Um, really as an apprenticeship position, where I learned all about life, all about thinking, all about goal setting. It was way worth the $10 an hour for me to make that decision. But you can't see that in hindsight. So went to work for this speaker. He was challenged at one point to work with 12 teenagers. And this is where it hit me, Howard. This is where I was like, okay, I made the right decision. I'm standing in in a, It was a a coliseum at the, the Louisiana Superdome. And these kids were on stage and they were showcasing the things they were learning with this speaker. He'd been working with them for a couple of weeks and it literally blew me to tears. I was in the audience and everyone was taking notes. And these kids were learning skills that we now know are called social and emotional skills like goal setting, how to have a good attitude, how to think, how to plan and they completely changed their lives around in a matter of weeks. And so that's where the path began. I, it hit me like a brick. I knew this is, I was in the right place. I'm supposed to figure out how to get these social and emotional skills in the schools. And uh, here we were, it was the late nineties. It it wasn't, uh, these were soft skills that weren't uh, readily, people didn't really think they had value at that point. And I was trying to figure out a way to do it. And I never gave up on the idea. I went to work for Pearson Education as a sales rep. Did really well in sales because of my time working for Proctor Selling Seminars. All these skills help in life, right? And went to work for Pearson, saw how they created curriculum for teachers. And then it was there where I figured I'm going to write curriculum. I started to write my first book. Um, with educators and parents in mind to put these social emotional skills. And I always was trying to put these ideas into Pearson's programs. I met with the Pearson product development team so many times, uh, 2007, eight, nine. Can we get these ideas in in this program that goes straight into the classroom kit for kids? And they weren't ready for it yet. I felt like I was ahead of the game with all of Mm -hmm. this. And so I just had to find my way, pave my own path. It's not been an easy path, but here we are. Uh, finally, I feel like I made my mark where I, I got uh, connected to Arizona Department of Ed. They chose my programs, got it into the schools. And that's really where the learning began for me. That's where it all started.
1: Wow, that's, a, that's amazing that you actually now have those programs in a state school system. Uh Yeah, great story, great story. And as we discussed, I think, on the podcast we did recently, is we very often we mistakenly identify when we think we got interested in something or, you know, this was the critical moment. And then when we have the fortune to find, you know, other evidence, we say, oh, you know what, that was I was kind of thinking like that years before that. I don't know whether that was your experience, but it sounded like there was something inherent in you that really wanted to grasp this notion of really effective education and training.
0: It was true there was some other experience that kind of hit me when you said that in our interview because I know that it hit me in the stomach that I wanted to get these social emotional skills but the neuroscience was there the understanding the science and I always wondered where did that come from and I remember in 8th grade I was uh, training to be a swimming instructor and lifeguard and we had to learn all about the heart and the parts of the valves and I, pr- I did this presentation to my class on the heart and how everything pumped through. And I remember everyone stood up and they were clapping and they're like, this was the best presentation we've ever had. And I knew at that moment that I have the ability to explain complex scientific ideas to people. And I feel like that's where, when the connection to neuroscience came in and an educator said, you've got to add the neuroscience in, I thought, well, I can do this because I remember I was good at explaining the heart. And I could probably figure out how to explain the brain so that it's easy for people to understand. So yeah, that connection came in as well.
1: Yeah, and and I'm sure that was important in not only devising effective programs, but also getting people to see the value of them, right? It just wasn't another program. It had a neuroscientific basis to it. That's what was being intuitively, you know, makes sense.
0: It does, but now that didn't come to me by, I didn't come up with that idea. Once my programs were chosen in Arizona to be on this preferred vendor list, it was an educator that pointed it out. He was like, Mm. you have to go this way. And I don't think I would have seen it if someone else didn't tell me. And and then, you know, it was a little, well, a little blow to my ego that he didn't like the way it was, you know, and I got to go do more work and learn more things. But that's just the way life goes. You've got to pay attention to what uh, people want and need, and then create that. And so then it became very obvious that was the right direction, but it, it wasn't an easy switch.
1: No, I wouldn't expect you to get it all in one go, really, right? Especially over time where things change. Uh, neuroscience was pretty obscure till the first 10 years of this century, really. I mean, massive, massive uh, amount of information and research started to come out and it became popularized um not that it didn't exist before but it certainly became much more available and aware uh, to professionals like us who that wasn't our main goal but it was definitely relevant to what we were doing
0: definitely definitely like nobody ever said to me ever growing up and especially even when i worked in the seminar industry what are you doing for your brain health or how is your brain involved in your goals it was all like what are you doing what's your five-year ten-year plan show me your vision but at no point did anyone ever talk about the brain so when the brain came in It was a huge shift for me to figure out, well, what's going on in my brain? How am I thinking? I was thinking about thinking back in the late 90s for sure, especially with making sure that you don't have negative thoughts or if something's bothering you, that you solve problems immediately or they affect your results. I knew all that, but at no point did anyone ever say, you know, talk about what's going on in your brain and how is your brain impacting your future, your health and your life?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what what is, you know, 20 years later, um, you have these programs, you have obviously learned a lot. What's the difference in what you're suggesting, what you see as effective education and training compared to either what was 20 years ago or what unfortunately still is the sort of norm now?
0: I think I think if you were to look and ask a bunch of educators that were like me that knew we knew these skills made an impact there just wasn't the research behind it. And then now there's organizations like castle.org that have done the research that can see the gains made by students that study these types of skills. And there's organizations that have formed around the country that are starting to implement these programs. And I watched, The country go from not having any social and emotional programs in the states to now pretty much every state knows what social and emotional programs are. So it was quite a switch. It was probably 2016, 17, all the way till now. And then now what your program has to show efficacy so you have to have research done and that's kind Mm -hmm. of where my program stopped because it's just me here and I didn't have an affiliation with a university to go and get a research study done I tried on my own and Mm -hmm. it was exhausting so yeah that's where my program stopped I'm not on Castle's approved program list for high school as much as I tried so I've got a program that I know works here in every state, there's social emotional plans, they're connected to Castle. they're connected to the research, they're connected to measuring these skills. So there's dashboards that are made that can take like uh, you pick, you want your students to improve in self-regulated learning, you pick that and you can watch that data over a one year, two year, five year period and show the gains and show how that that skill correlated to your school culture so that's the shift that i see we knew these skills were important lots of programs came out but who are the ones that are going to survive probably the ones that are associated with the publishers that get the research behind them and but but now here's the thing. There's programs that are in the schools that have the money and the research, but they're not engaging the students. So because because I come from this this uh, industry, I would ask my my kids, you know, hey, what program are you learning social emotional? And and they know what what I mean by that. They know what I do um, in my office here. And so they talk about it with how they're forced to do these worksheets and they get candy if they hand the worksheet back. And I'm thinking they've still missed the boat. It, this is not how we implement these skills. It has to be in discussion periods where students are asking questions. When I would go in with my program, they would ask the questions, the difficult ones, like, like how do we forgive somebody that wronged us? You know, and, and they wanna know this because they've got somebody in their life that they're at odds with and they don't have these social skills, they're not taught. And then I would show them the, what would happen to them and their results if they don't forgive somebody that's wronged them. And And they would sit there and think, well, how do I do that? That's how we implement these ideas. It has to be through discussion, through experience, not through a worksheet that they fill in, and get a candy because they did it they did not implement that skill
1: Correct. Right. and as we talked about on your podcast you know the big difference between facts and experience and it has to be an experience it's and especially the social emotional material has to be that it, it doesn't make sense for it to be a fact just to, it just doesn't so, what are the sorts of uh, areas that you focus on with these social emotional programs?
0: Definitely. So, so Castle came up with five competencies. So, there's self awareness, social awareness, self regulation. Uh, there's relationship skills. I have, if in my podcast, I have this little brain with. Uh, six of them. I always put growth mindset in there because I feel like mindset is a huge part of it all. And Carol Dweck and her work. So, you know, that's why I chose six competencies, Mm -hmm. SEL competencies. And those are the ones. So like, for instance, let's just look at self-awareness. We are not taught and, and Mark Brackett, who wrote his book, Permission to Feel, He proved it. We are not taught about our emotions anywhere. So you you have an emotion. Let's say you're doing a math problem. You're frustrated. We're not taught how to overcome the frustration to do that math problem to talk about it. So that's just Uh, Self-awareness is one thing, understanding our emotions, how we can deal with it as a student in the classroom, doing our work as a teacher, trying to teach the class, manage our emotions. It's a huge one. Our self-awareness, we have to have strategies. And that's what I feel like I'm learning from this podcast from day one. I'm learning strategies, whether it's a wearable, brain training device that's helping or if it's breathing techniques or if it's measuring my results to see, you know, how am I recovering on a day to day basis? Your results are clear as ice if you measure them and put them in numbers, how you're thinking and operating shows up in your results. So you got to be self-aware and and where is this being taught
1: in Arizona? (laughs) <laughs> nowhere else
0: Well um, uh, that's why in the very beginning I actually started my podcast with these six these six competencies And it was actually going to be a course for an educational publisher, they were looking at it, and I'd written an outline and they were going to use it. And then all this stuff happened, the the company fell apart, and it amalgamated into two different companies. And it didn't go anywhere. But I launched it as a podcast, and I put the information out for free. And uh, I get calls from people in the policing, who are creating these types of programs for kids that are, they're trying to rehabilitate back into, in, into society. People all over the world, it went into 143 countries, and I just had no idea what wasn't my intention. I was just thinking, well, I got to put this information up because it didn't work that way. I'm going to go this way now. But uh, absolutely, these these six competencies, I think we should all know of and implement. Um, People all over the country are doing things in different ways with this. I interview people I pick and see who's working on relationships. And then I interview that person and try to tie it back to these six competencies that are, I think, important life skills that we should all know, and then tie in how the brain ties into this. And then I feel like that's where we could all rise up and be better people.
1: Yeah, and for listeners, uh, we're talking about self-awareness. If you don't know what introspection is, you need to take a good, hard look at yourself. Um, that was a joke, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not my, my line, but but yeah, absolutely. And are these, so these are taught in a sort of formal structure, is that how that works or is it more informal as a situation arises or both or? or
0: yeah, you know? it's a little bit of both. So when when I was creating the Level Up book that turned into the online program, you see it behind me and I, I put a, an outline and I put the competencies in there. So self-awareness, just activities for students and teachers to become self-aware. And then you know everything i could think of on the podcast lesson on self-awareness and so you know you can learn these skills from discussion from activities from discussing tv shows was another one that was was popular so there was this it was kind of like a horror TV show. It was called Stranger Things, and all the kids were watching it. And I took two students from, or two characters from this Stranger Things, and I said, who's more self-aware, Jonathan or Steven? Jonathan had this photography habit. He liked taking pictures, and Stephen was just like kind of like a crazy mess. And the students could pick out that um Jonathan was self-aware and then we could explain why why was Jonathan self-aware well when he got into a fight he was able to calm himself down he knew what was important to him he carried this camera around he was aware of his his passions of his purpose of what he wanted to do and Stephen who knows we had no idea so that could kind of uh, like ignite a conversation for for young people on who are you who do you think you are? You're more than your name. You're definitely not your name. Who are you? And until Bob Proctor asked me that, Andrea, who are you? It, it, I didn't really know. I was like, I don't know. Right. <laughs> but when you start to figure that out, who are you? Well, I'm so passionate about education, about learning, about lifelong learning. You start to put all the bits together and it creates your path and it creates certainty. And you know you've never gone off your path if you know what it is, you know where you are, you know where you're going.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I've seen, uh, you know, various articles and research about using some of that in real-time situations when kids, uh, sort of quotation mark, need to go to timeout. You know, what, what do you do? Do you send them to timeout without an instruction? Do you get them to meditate or think about what they've done? Do you, I mean, presumably that's a situation which would be very rich in terms of education. Is there any, is that integrated into this?
0: Oh, yes. It's huge because, so Lori Desital, I've interviewed her a few times. She was probably one of the first people I knew that was teaching the basics of neuroscience. She runs the... Um, undergraduate neuroscience program at Butler University, and she's training teachers on the basics of neuroscience in our schools. And so when I first was told to go this way and I'm on Google and trying to figure out who's teaching this, she came up And then I followed her through the years and she had this idea that's pretty powerful. It's called an amygdala first aid station.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. So, And I used it, I actually made this first aid kit when I was in the schools with my program in front of students. I had this first aid box behind me. Now, some of this stuff you could think, oh, this is woo woo and weird, but you got to have ideas and strategies because something happens and it always did. Some kid would misbehave, of course, and here I'm used to it. I remember my, my behavioral students, they were all misbehaving. So mm-hmm. to have one or two misbehaving was not a big a big deal for me. But uh, instead of kicking them out, which is what would ha- have happened, the teacher would have been mad, you know, Miss Samadhi's here. She's you know, helping you guys learn these ideas. And one of the schools that I was at, it was actually a volunteer basis. So when I would get funds come in from another school, I would flow it to uh, one of the, the schools that needed it the most. And so these kids really needed to understand these skills. And all the books that I supplied were um, were donation from the fact that other schools paid. So here I am in a school that needs it. I don't want to kick these kids out. I don't want to say, you know, go get out, get out the back door. That would be the easy thing. Mm -hmm. The hard thing is to say, okay, here. I've got this amygdala first aid station. Why don't you go over there and see if you can calm yourself down? And I put different things there, you know, different age groups. If they're Mm -hmm. younger, they could do like some sort of um, smelling like lavender or something to calm them down. Or a pillow could be soothing, something like that. But now here I am with these high school kids. I'm like, so I put this lotion and here there's these big guys that are like rough and they're like smelling the lotion and they didn't get kicked out out and they returned to their seat. So I would say that was a way a, a modern way of calming the brain. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to have any yelling because we know when my cortisol rises, so does their cortisol. And then it just becomes like this endless cycle. And that's mm-hmm. that's how every day of my teaching went. It was me mm-hmm. going, sit down, stop doing that. And then I'm mm-hmm. yelling and then their cortisol is up and then they're gonna keep misbehaving. And it's just a nightmare that this day never ends like that. So this is just a way to save. There's lots of strategies like that where mm-hmm. we put the brain in mind into the classroom. And Lori Desitell is doing such an incredible job with with her programs like
1: mm-hmm. that. And um, yeah, and you've of course written your your book um, about all of this, right? Um, you have another one coming out. Tell us I, about your book.
0: I do. I need to now integrate everything I've learned from the podcast because level up I wrote when I first understood the basics of neuroscience when that teacher said I can't have I can't have the program in the schools as it is you need to write a second book and it has to be brain based. So I took everything out that was associated with the mind, which was my Mm -hmm. focus in the past, Mm -hmm. and I put the brain and it wasn't too difficult because they're not too far apart. And so I have the three parts of the brain and level up. Well, now things are different. Now we know of brain network theory. Now we know that there's lots of networks. It's not just three parts of the brain. It's all parts of the brain firing at different times, learning how to switch between different networks. So my next book has to uh, uh, cover everything that I've learned from the podcast. There has to be a book three that catches everyone up
1: hmm. Okay, well, that's great. I look forward to that. Um, you talked about the six characteristics that uh, you focus on. Um, let's go through them again.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I always have them so so growth mindset. So mm-hmm. on oh, everyone knows this from Carol Dweck and her work with, you know, uh, it's I haven't got it yet. You know, the, the you you're working on a math problem, I envision in the future of our schools, a little breakout box next to a math problem that says, keep going. You haven't got it yet. Keep trying something like that to show growth mindset in the classroom mm-hmm. and growth mindset spills over into everything. It spills into athletics, mm-hmm. you know, um, how how you think and feel about yourself. Do you think that you? Um, have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset and this was a big one for me because as i started to do some work on growth mindset i started to learn that we might think we have a growth mindset like of course you and i we do these podcasts we Mm -hmm. if everyone said hey howard do you have a growth (laughs) mindset Uh, you know do you think we you can learn new things but catch yourself when something happens and you're not good at something like that's when we go to fix mindset so we can go back and forth from fix to growth and we just have to be aware of this here's the self-awareness again because uh, let's just say i wasn't a strong math student and my kid comes home with a math problem and they're struggling and i say well let's wait till dad comes home because he's brilliant with numbers and i'm not that's fixed mindset. And now I'm putting that onto them. They're gonna be like, well, mom's not good at math. Maybe I'm not. And then, so growth mindset is something we have to use awareness with and always be aware of how we're thinking and feeling and the fact that we have neuroplastic brains and there is nothing that we can't do or learn, I fully believe. Mm -hmm. So that's the first one. We talked a little bit about self-awareness. That's a huge one. Self-regulation is another one because uh, this was not a skill taught to us. You know, when your buttons are pushed, Dr. Dan Siegel talks about it all the time. What happens in the brain uh when you react you react to a situation something maybe boils your blood and you're like oh i want to yell it could it could depend on whether you're in the classroom teaching if you're a parent at home and something's bothering you for me it's when the kids don't pick up their towels whatever it is we all need to learn how to manage our emotions and there's lots of different strategies that are out there like meditation mindfulness But I feel like those strategies take years and years to get the benefits of at least for me. uh, That's just how I feel like I started to notice I'm more calmer, less reactive. But then there's other tools that come out like um, like the Fisher Wallace brain training device can calm you down. Other tools that are out there in the world. I'm interviewing someone next who's worked with IBM executives. top executives uh, helping them to get into out of the beta thinking into the alpha with different brain training and neurofeedback. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I know, do you, do you have yeah. experience with that? Because I Absolutely. don't, I, I don't yes. know. How else do you?
1: Absolutely. I do have, a, I do have, influ- I do have experience with the neurotechnology part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is uh something called audio visual entrainment. And my good friend, David Seaver up in Canada from where you are originally from um, is, is kind of a leader in that field. And he's devised some amazing technology that's, you know, you can buy. It's portable um, that actually delivers sound, light, stimulation to different areas of the brain, actually. It's evolved over the years to get your brain in a particular state. And that could be down into more of an alpha state, more creative state, even into a sleep state or into a more alert state if you need to stay focused. And it's amazing stuff. So the neurotechnology part of that, I think we've got, it's developing enormously and we've got some of those tools now to do that.
0: Right. Yeah. I'm yeah. so interested in that. And, this guy, he's local in Sedona, and a lot of people go to his offices to get this intense seven-day training. But right. I think it's powerful when you can have something in your home. Like
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, and there is now sort of online neurofeedback training as well. Um, so there are options for people. There are no question about that. And I like it too um, because I think it really shows the brain – how the brain can be uh, somewhat manipulated in terms of general activity in different areas of the brain, and how that can be very helpful uh, temporarily. Um, and I've, I've had clients use it with anxiety, depression, ADHD, I mean, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the vast majority of them have found it beneficial, no question. Wow. Yeah. Very, very yeah. interesting. I'll be happy to send you more info on that
0: because, oh, please do. Uh, I, love because I do Henders. think
1: it's <laughs> it would be a very cool device for a school to have, a part of your amygdala first aid station, actually. You know? Yeah. Um, so for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So we've got um growth mindset, we've got self-awareness, self-regulation. Which I happen to believe is really critical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with work going back, you know, 50 years to Walt Michelle at Stanford and his the famous marshmallow or cookie study. Oh right? yeah,
0: I did that one with my kids. Just yeah, to yeah, yeah.
1: That. And you know, the evidence was the kids who were able to defer immediate gratification and wait a few minutes and get two rather than one you know, were followed up over time and they were healthier, more successful, what have you. And I do think that self-control, even though there's a lot of sort of, uh, how do we put this, um, pr- commercial applications out there and people who push them say it's got nothing to do with self-control. You know, no. The reason I think they say that is they don't know how to change it. Mm-hmm. Clearly, self-control is a huge part of life and um you know just following on a little bit from the conversation you and i had the other day about consciousness um there is this theory that really the the great advantage of consciousness is it has not necessarily a thought generating notion but it has a veto that if something pops into your mind your consciousness has the ability to look at that and say, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm. Uh, Perhaps even more than generating ideas because we know that a lot of those things actually start subconsciously. Uh, And and so that veto notion, I like that. It fits very well with concept of self-control. Now, it can work both ways. You know, your body says, well, it's time to go to the gym. And you say, ah, nah, I'm going to veto that, you know, because, and then bring up all your excuses. Um, so, it, but, but I think that veto is, is important and that's where self-control comes in.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And mm. thinking about even the fact you've got to learn to give up something to get something and for school, it was always like, you've got to learn how to stay home and study to do well and not hang out with your friends, give up something of a lower nature to get something of a higher nature. That's how I've always thought about it.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's true. Uh, actually, my son is a good example of that. He, he, when he was in uh, high school, he went into the junior ROTC program. Mm-hmm. And initially in the early part of high school, uh, certainly the freshman, sophomore year, the other kids were, eh, you know, you're not part of the in crowd. You're, you know, you you want to do this army military thing, and and he we had we had a conversation. I remember, I think it was sophomore year. Is yeah, I I'm missing out on social opportunities because I'm doing this, but this is what I want to do, and um, that's okay with me, you know. Yeah. Uh, which was really interesting and what was great was the evolution that by when he was a senior and he was now actually the cadet commander he had been organizing something for um, memorial day or something like that and he walked back into the classroom and everyone gave him a standing ovation um, so but but it but it's a great example he recognized this is what i want to do and there are costs of doing that but i still want to do it
0: in- mm-hmm. That was self-awareness, right?
1: Yes. Yep. right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what are the other ones then?
0: So then, now here's an interesting one. See how we've done self-awareness, self-regulated learning. So I started to do some work with David Adams. He's from the Urban Assembly. Um, He's the CEO now, but at the time he was in charge of social emotional learning there and talks a lot about looking at things through an ethical, cultural lens. And he brought my eyes open to the fact that there's the social aspect to it. So social awareness, being aware of other people, And, you know, I thought it was really interesting. He said, most people are focused on self-awareness. And I had all this stuff on my Mm. podcast about self-awareness. And he was right. I had one podcast on social awareness, um, being empathetic towards others, seeing things from a different perspective, just the things we were talking about um, when we were talking. It, it's all trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. It's not easy to do. Be empathetic to other people when somebody else is, you know, you're having a conversation, try to see something from another perspective. So that's social awareness and again, it's not taught anywhere. And I noticed how little social awareness was um, the emphasis on it. If you were to look at anyone's programs that focus on these competencies, it's all focused on self self awareness.
1: Yeah, um, that's right. self
0: regulated learning, let's do this for us. What about what are we doing for other people? And
1: yeah, and that's, that's absolutely huge. Um, In a Western society, and particularly the American society, where there is the emphasis is on the self and the ego, where other societies, Asian societies, more traditionally are about collective, Uh, you know, how do we, how do we relate to each other? And that's so important. We see the divisiveness in this country now. So if there's ever a need for it, it's now to understand that. And yeah, walking in other people's shoes is tough. Mm-hmm. But, but you've also got to learn to walk in your shoes first before you can walk in somebody else's because you don't know what that's involved in that. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that self-awareness is part of it, but it's not the same as social awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Okay.
0: And then there's relationship skills. Mm. So, you know, a big one. So I interviewed Greg Wolcott and he's got this book all about building relationships in our schools. Um, you know more than just the handshakes. If you have, and and I think you talked about it on on when we were talking. That student that you said what was the subject that they remembered or that they liked the most? It was the one with the teacher they liked. So that was the relationship that came in, they had some sort of bond with their teacher. And I remember my sixth grade teacher gave me this nickname and made me feel really good about myself. And that was the the teacher that I just thought about my whole life. You know, Mm -hmm. nobody ever matched that. So it's more than just the, the relationships you're building with your students. If you're in the classroom or with other people, whether in your in the corporate space, how are you connecting with other people? How are you thinking about their goals, their needs again versus what I need?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And question for you as you're talking about that, I've um, obviously been thinking about that before, is obviously this has relevance not just to school, but to any, pretty much any training, mm-hmm. education, right?
0: Right, and that's why I try to give tips for schools and the workplace because these skills spill into the workplace. The kids finish school now, what are they going to do now they have to learn how to go out into the world and and have these have success in the workplace, know how to be in a in a corporate environment and when the culture goes bad, what happens because that surely happened to Pearson. I remember when Pearson amalgamated with another company, we lost the name, the morale was low. And then they they were like, Andrea, what can you present to us that can bring the morale up? And I was thinking, yeah, nothing that that I'm going to say is going to be of interest because all my stuff was all like energy stuff or positive thinking. And at some point, everybody is just down. It, it all comes from an individual basis. how are we gonna all bring ourselves up and uh, yeah I, it, it's hard when a company is struggling culturally sometimes it's like they I, I don't really know the answer to that it's like how to how do you bring up a whole team of of people, I I see it right now, especially with the fact a lot of companies have merged with uh, the COVID situation, Mm -hmm. everything's different, they might have a new boss. So now these skills are so important. How do you learn to deal with a boss now that shows up late on every meeting where your boss from before was You you got along really well. These relationship skills tie in whether you're in the school or the workplace. It's huge. Yeah,
1: no question. And of course, uh, a lot of the data suggesting, I think I'm right about this, that uh, particularly uh, amongst uh, millennials, the reasons they give for leaving jobs is typically some sort of conflict with management, broadly defined. Mm That they don't feel they get the credit uh, they're not appreciated you know, blah 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 yeah and and that's right you're absolutely right and that's it, it, it would be easy to overlook the social element how do you relate to other people
0: because yeah. right. we're do always do usually thinking of ourselves like that's what are right. we going after what's right. our goal
1: that's right yeah that's right yeah amazing amazing um well we could go on forever uh, and we probably will but probably not on this recording okay um so where can people who are interested in what you are doing uh what resources do you have them and where can they reach you
0: Oh, definitely. They can go to achieveit360.com. That's my website. You can see the podcast. There's a link for the podcast there. You can see the programs. I'm always looking to develop something new. There's a new shift coming up and lots to think about for September. Um, the new book, new workshops, and, and perhaps some new partnerships.
1: Yeah, but, you know, that's great. And I again want to reiterate to the listeners. Um, what a fantastic job you I'm sure do, but my personal experience of being on your show, not only was it a great exchange of ideas and communication, you did a phenomenal job in producing it so that when it was on YouTube and, you know, 50 plus minutes of content, uh, how well you personally did, and I thought you'd actually got some sort of professional director to do it, but how well you professional did by putting up on the screen, you know, the relevant drift in the conversation, cap- capturing it. This is what we're talking about. Uh, putting up, you know, r- pictures of books that were mentioned, quotes from people. I mean, it was a, It was really good. So, uh, I really encourage all the listeners. to to go to Andrea's page and and listen, watch uh, the podcast that she's done because she does a phenomenal job. I've never seen anything like it. Phenomenal job Mm -hmm. in visualizing, presenting to the viewer really important visual information that is backing up the conversations going on. So you really did a great job.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, and you've had a lot of great people on your show, I have to say. Uh, a lot of people in the neuroscience and education space, you know, very well-known people, so I was honored to be on that. And you clearly have had a lot of interesting interactions <laughs> with, with people, and um, it's, it's great to hear somebody who not only has been able to organize that, but has benefited from those conversations.
0: Definitely. If I wasn't using it myself, I don't know if I'd be doing it. <laughs> so.
1: No, no, no. It, so. Yeah. And so achieve it 360.com. Right. Um, and I presume you've got a lot of social media. Um, yeah, on. I'm
0: on LinkedIn, Twitter, just put my name in there. If you want to find a podcast, just go to iTunes, put my name in. It's pretty easy. Everything pops up through social media with, tags
1: and things yeah excellent so this is andrea samadi s-a-m-a-d-i uh again andrea thank you so much for first of all having me on your show and then being such a great guest here it's been awesome i'm sure we're going to talk some more mm-hmm. but for now i will um thank you again and wish you well until the next time that we get thank together you so
0: much thank you so much this was fun